You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage at work, at home and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard. Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting the Yes And. My guest today is Rob Koslowski. Rob is, the, uh, is an author, teacher, script reader, and journalist who currently reports for Pensions and Investments newspaper. He was a faculty member in the Cinema and Television Arts Department at Columbia College Chicago for nearly 20 years. He taught comedy writing at the Second City at our training center in Chicago for 14 years, and he's the author of The Art of Chicago Improv, Shortcuts to Long-Form Improvisation, and The Actor's Guide to the Internet. But his latest book is called Becoming Nick and Nora, The Thin Man in the Films of William Powell and Myrna Loy. Uh, enjoy our pod. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another Unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Rob Kozlowski, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Kelly. So this interview is a bit of a departure from the focus we usually have on the podcast. And that's in part because you and I have known each other for at least two decades, probably yes. more. Yeah. And because we both clearly have a love for the Thin Man movies, so much so that my wife Anne and I named our son Nick Charles Leonard and our daughter Nora. We didn't go quite so far as to name our dog Asta, but here, here we are. Uh, before we dig into the book specifically, I want to get an idea of where this journey started for you. Because for me, I remember these films being recommended to me by my boss, at the video store in Wilmette, Illinois, where I worked in the 1980s, and I was immediately enthralled by the characters and the world they inhabit. How did you come to these films? Because we're very young men. Yes, and we are extremely young. <laughs> I really, my mom and dad were, especially my mother, was a huge uh, movie fan, mm-hmm. old movie. And she was in that like cross-generational moment of the late 60s where, you know, movies beginning with Bonnie and Clyde and Midnight Cowboy and stuff, things got a lot more graphic. And yeah. she was definitely a conservative person who was just like pre-1967 movies. She just really fostered that. And one of the things we had on Sunday afternoons uh, when I was a little kid was Bears games at noon yep. uh, that, that they would then lose and I would cry. And then <laughs> <laughs> nothing <and> changed. <laughs> yeah. And then we would watch Family Classics on that WGA. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I definitely remember the Adventures of Robin Hood and uh, Marx Brothers Duck Soup. I don't remember the Thin Man, and I was probably too young at the time to have really appreciated it anyway. But, you know, fast forward, I had developed a wonderful appreciation of old movies and was particularly interested in silent films in the 30s. And it was around the DVD era. I, I can't remember the first time I saw the Thin Man, yeah. but I realized at some point 
you know, I think when I started renting DVDs in the late 90s and early 2000s, that's when I saw it. Or it was on Turner Classic Movies, I'm not sure. As a young adult, it really, really attracted me because I love old movies. I know that there's a passage of time that has occurred, mm-hmm. that there needs to be some contextualization in terms of the time period that these movies came from. The Thin Man felt like it could have been made today. Totally. Um, that something familiar with these characters and so unique and likable and the relationship was unlike really anything that you know you're familiar with i i developed a love of screwball comedy it's between it happened one night and my man godfrey and his girl friday but obviously the the common link between all those movies is that the characters hate each other at the beginning right so so you know this was something really unique and different and i think you know, I would just watch these over and over again and just really began to appreciate it. Fast forward 2018 or so, and it just occurred to me that there really hadn't been a book written about the both of them and they together. And what I found particularly interesting was that they had both started, they pretty much had the like identical journeys yeah. to Nick and Nora Charles. They were both villains. So I just found that like, like, um, exploring that journey i thought would be make for an interesting book and honestly it was one of those things that i was shocked that that really hadn't been done yet yeah no no for sure and i think so so let's me let's start a little bit about the context about the film industry at at this point and where it came from because i think that's also important to realize as you've already alluded to so Mm -hmm. if you're if you're talking yeah i think it was around 1910 1911 that that period this is when Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, sort of like, I, I think it's the evolution of movie stars, right? It, absolutely. All right. And then uh, take, take us from there to, to where, where Myrna Loy and William Powell are, are entering in the silence. Well, you know, basically, you know, if you think about the impact that movie stars made in the teens, it's extraordinary because, you know, when you look at someone like Mary Pickford and Charlie Chaplin, it is not an exaggeration to say that those two were the most famous people that had ever lived <laughs> Yeah, at the time, yeah. People had seen them than had seen anybody in history, in in human history. So obviously, you know, it it only took like five or 10 years for the film industry to become the fourth largest industry in the United States. It just exploded like crazy. It eventually became a very star-driven industry because Pickford, Chaplin, some of their other contemporaries, Douglas Fairbanks, soon realized they wielded a great deal of power. Uh-huh. And they were able to really, I hate using this verb, monetize their star power. Studios did a lot of things to try to screw around and not pay stars enough. But uh-huh. those folks really sort of established the star system. And so each studio eventually kind of formed a template of the different types that they had under contract. You know, in the 20s, actors were usually under contract for five to seven years. And this was the environment that William Powell and Myrna Loy came into. Essentially, Hollywood needed lots and lots of talent. They were making lots and lots of movies. Each studio, each of the five major studios was doing 50 feature films a year. And it was really not easy, obviously, but there were a lot of actors under contract. So the environment that they went into was essentially Loy was signed by Warner Brothers. Powell was signed by Paramount. And essentially, their job was to be a type. Yeah. And so each would make, each would appear in anywhere from gosh, uh, half a dozen to a dozen movies a year. 
playing some sort of variation on, the, on that type, um, which I have to imagine would get very tedious for an actor very quickly. That, that was basically, you know, for the vast majority of actors, you know, and that's why, you know, when you look at these old movies, you see these recurring character actors constantly because they had, they had an ensemble that just played the same roles over and over and over again. You know, so it's, it's, so in yeah. the so Powell's playing a, a, a villain and Myrtle is a villainess, but Myrtle also they they kept putting her in these exotic roles. I mean, you could never do this today, but what, what did they see in her that read? Oh, we're going to have her be you know this ethnicity and then this ethnicity. That happened more often than you'd think. Wow. Um, I mean, like one of my favorite examples was Roman Ramon Navarro. Uh, he's the original Ben Hur in 1925. He was Mexican, and that was literally the only ethnicity he never got to play. Um, <laughs> in Son of India, he played an Indian. In The Sun Daughter, he played a Chinese man. In Matahari, he played a Russian. Um, I mean, it was extraordinary, all with Mexican accents. And so <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. And so there was something about Loy that they just, you know, the, the way that she was photographed during her original photo, you know, mm-hmm. uh, photo session, just something they were like, oh, here's the new vamp. And, yeah. um, you know, Theta Barra had, had uh, sort of fallen out of fashion. And so they were looking for that new sort of villainess. And of course, sort of the, uh, because of the sort of the uh, racism of the time, you know, exotic translated into some other ethnicity. So she, you know, they had to do yellow face or black face or whatever they had to do. Um, and usually, it was usually, you know, Chinese and Hispanic were sort of the choices of the time. Mostly. Yeah. So it, it was just something that these particular subgroups all are defined by, you know, something's exotic or villainous or something like that. They would just, you know, fit her in a role once in a while she got to play outside that role but uh mostly she you know ended up sort of being pigeonholed into those parts got you know 30 or 40 movies in like three or four years many it's, of it's unbelievable and, and and the fact that most of those films like they shot in a couple weeks sometimes oh, right oh absolutely it's incredible what, what's mostly what's so incredible about the studio system regardless of whether you like the films or not is how efficient they were i mean it was mm-hmm. It was, you know, they call an assembly line and it really kind of was, you know, it was, you know, they would buy the rights to something. They'd write a script in a couple of weeks. They'd, you know, have it, the, the, you know, and everyone was under contract. So you could just plug, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the crew and the cast into the movie pretty quickly. And then, you know, you were home to the races and, you know, post-production took, you know, a few weeks. And then it was, you know, they just had to strike the prints and they were in theaters. So it's kind of incredible. So these, the other thing that Powell and Lloyd benefited from, although some of these roles were goofy, is they just, the experience they got was unbelievable. You know, being able to play a different role every month, um, you know, they just became very, very, um, very, very good actors. You know, they, they knew how to play anything because they had to. Well, I think, too, especially, you know, because you have experience here at Second City and in the theater community and in improv, and that idea of reps is so essential to any sort of performer. But I think especially when it came to time, when it came time for them to use their comic chops, Mm -hmm. even though they had done all these other roles, it was still practice in sort of eliciting a certain kind of emotion. And so I think that's maybe in one reason why it felt so fresh was 
these unlikely characters are then given this incredible comedic work. And, and as you know, from watching the films, it's, it's, it feels effortless. And of course it isn't. No, it's not. It's, it, 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 that's what's extraordinary really is because it would be interesting to think about, you know, by the time that they actually played Nick and Nora Charles, I think they had each made well over 50 films by yeah. that point. So they just, you know, in a lot of ways, it was, you know, there wasn't a lot of time for rehearsal. I mean, it was, you know, they had a script and they had to recite lines, but it was very improvisational. You know, it was a lot about your instincts and really understand playing off that other character. I mean, so much of what Paolo and Lloyd do well together is listen to each other and react to each other. And they just have the instincts and they know how to do that because they've had to do it so many times in so many situations, um, playing so many different kinds of characters. So the original Thin Man movie was a critical and commercial success. It was mm-hmm. shot in two weeks in 1934. And this is all your research with a B movie budget of $226,000. I actually looked this up. That's a little over $5 million if spent in 2023 dollars. Um, uh, and, so, and, and it grossed uh, 1.4 million, which would be around 31.5 million. So, like, a incredible, incredible margin, um, yeah. which, which is fantastic. And it got a whole bunch of uh, nominations as well, Oscar nominations. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, what I love is what you explore uh, inside this film. And I, this is what I want you to talk about, especially for those who haven't seen the film or want to be reminded or haven't seen it. But there are so many sort of extraordinary moments, especially with the way this thing opens, because you don't really get introduced to these characters for how long? Like, I think it's yeah, 11 minutes, 11, 11 minutes, which is so. un, I, again, unheard of with regard to uh, mm-hmm. a movie about these two main, main characters. So talk a bit about what makes that so, so interesting. Well, what makes it really interesting is that, well, first of all, the, the thin man, uh, the novel was written by Dashiell Hammett, who is mm-hmm. sort of the classic detective novel writer. And his other most famous film is the Maltese Falcon. And we're, when we're really familiar with the Maltese Falcon, that sort of, established the template of introducing the detective in the first scene he's sitting in his office the window blinds are casting shadows on the on the desk and the femme fatale comes in seeking help that's the template that was formed by the maltese falcon and in the book the thin man nick is introduced right away Mm -hmm. uh in this in the scene when he's um approached by um kathy winant who's searching for her missing father uh, but what's really great about the first 11 minutes of The Thin Man is that it is establishing all of the characters in, that are involved in the mystery. Um, the murder suspect who is found to be murdered and all of the supporting characters who clearly have a very strong reason for, for murdering him. And even though a lot of writers talk about The Thin Man not caring about the mystery, it really is about, I mean, that is the, the, the driving part of the plot is that mm-hmm. we are invested in these characters. We already know who they are. We're not going to get confused by the detectives sort of rattling off names. And um, it makes us invested in that mystery so that we don't get bored by it because Nick and Nora are such strong characters that, you know, and, and part of that happened in the later movies where the mystery wasn't quite strong enough. But, um, you know, there isn't a conflict between Nick and Nora, but every story needs a conflict. And so by really establishing that mystery and getting the audience invested in that mystery, we have something to care about beyond just Nick and Nora so that we don't have to. So we don't have to worry about, like, 
creating some sort of petty conflict between the two. So it was really uh, Francis Goodrich and Al Albert Hackett were a husband and wife screenwriter team that, that co-wrote The Thin Man, the screenplay, and they improved upon the book. So the book is wonderful, but they improved yeah. upon the book so radically. And that might have been the biggest improvement was changing that opening. Because in the book, we never meet the murder victim. He's just some guy off, off the page. We don't care about him. Um, and the wonderful thing about the opening scene is that this guy's like a grumpy guy that everyone hates, but he clearly, he had, there's a moment where he just, he loves his daughter mm -hmm. very much. And she's announced that she's getting married and it's this wonderful touching scene, this guy, but he, meanwhile, he like fires his assistant randomly, uh, for dropping something. Uh, he's clearly like mostly just a jackass to everybody else, but he clearly loves his daughter. So we have some, you know, we have something invested in this guy. So, um, it's it's a really interesting way to start the movie, and I think the other thing, and this this is the heart. I think this is the heart of the book, uh, and and is the heart of the film. You write, quote, "There is one incontrovertible." Am I not going to be able to say this word? Quote: "There is one incontrovertible appeal about Nick and Nora Charles that will never change. They like each other. It is the friendliest, most fun marriage ever captured on screen." End quote. This is, I, and I think this is ultimately what I was responding to, is you never see this. They yeah. like each other, and they trust each other, and that's never in doubt through any of these films. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's, that's you know, it's kind of funny that you're doing the Yes And podcast, because they are the most Yes And married couple. On yeah, I guess they, yeah. They are... Um, there's never, you know, my maybe my favorite moment in the movie is when they're at this party and Winant, you know, comes into the, she's distraught. She tries to uh, confess to a murder, trying to clear her father, blah, blah, blah. And Nick embraces her. And in every single other movie ever made in the history of the universe, when the wife comes to open the door and sees her husband embracing another woman, there would be some sort of negative reaction. Yeah. But instead the two just sort of, essentially stick their tongues out of each other playfully. Yeah, they make faces. And it's the uh, that moment of absolute trust, you know, and that happens, you know, a few times uh, throughout the movie. But to me, that's sort of like the real story of Nick and Nora. It's that they have a complete, you know, they they bicker, but it's not, you know that it's never actually bickering. It's just that they're, they're playing the game of this relationship and it just absolutely delights them both to be able to have this other person play off of and um god i can't imagine anybody else you know any other two actors ever being able to pull it off because no and I, and I think it's interesting too there's a harvard study the grant study which is the oldest study they've ever done around what uh, um brings people happiness over the years and mm -hmm. uh w what they've discovered overwhelmingly is its relationships and one of the observations from one of the guys who stewarded the research and I interviewed him was that these couples, uh, uh, the ones who were, who sort of reported their sort of happiness level, they bicker and it's because they care. Um, right. and I think that with, if, if it just stopped there, if that's what, you know, that they had this great marriage and all that, I think that would be saccharine, except for the fact that they're almost always drunk. So yeah. I think you have, the, <laughs> you, you even say you'd almost never see them without a drink in the hand. I mean, that is this other sort of like slightly dark thing that I also found incredibly appealing with them because it also shows this, again, this dark side. 
Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's really interesting because they, you know, you, you can, well, this came out in June, 1934. I forget exactly when prohibition was overturned, not that long before no. uh, it came out. So, I mean, it was really sort of a, a celebration of being able to do so in public, you know, you didn't have yeah. to go to a season. and B, and, and I can see like my mom, my, my grandfather was an alcoholic. And so my mom didn't like it so much. Yeah. I got uh, there's other character. It, it's very interesting because um, I don't talk that much about the drinking in the book, but I think, you know, the one thing is a, it's the celebration that prohibition is over and B, I think a lot of it is just the fact that even in a loving relationship, sometimes it's those dark things that unite them as well. Mm-hmm. You know, those things in common um so it's it's kind of interesting that um and and, and sometimes it, it's really interesting especially the moment when you know that probably one of the most famous exchanges of course is when he's she asks him how many martinis he's had and he says on his sixth and so she has the waiter then line up five martinis mm-hmm. to uh, kind of catch up with him and there's so much in that, you know, it's so much about, you know, obviously there's a level of alcoholism in there, but there's also this sort of playful competition between the two that there's literally nothing that they won't do together. You know, I kind of, you know, wonder which one was the drinker first. Right. Um, And sometimes I think that's Nick, because I think, you know, in terms of the dark side, I think Nora admires the dark side. She's fascinated by the dark oh, yeah. side. Mm-hmm. She's the one that, um, you know, Nick has all of these, you know, strange friendships with all the guys that he sent to prison. And Nora is delighted by being around this. And so I, I generally t- tend to think sometimes, you know, maybe the drinking is, is just another way of looking at how, the underworld uh, is romanticized to Nora, um, you know, just like all of those underworld characters that that uh, Nick attaches himself to. So this make this makes me think of um, I, one of the things I, I uh, uh, love about Second City is is especially uh, early in my career here is is how many alumni would come back and give you the time of day. And sure. so one, one of the people who is always a, a fantastic mentor and became a friend was Harold Ramis. Okay. So for people who don't know Harold, of course, a legendary, uh, he was a Ghostbuster, but also legendary film director and writer. Uh, and also just like a very kind human, renowned for his, his, his kindness. Harold Ramis loved CD people. Like, like I got invited to so many lunches where I'm like, why this person was with a mob. And, and he's like, I know I'm just sort of, and, and so it's very much like a Nora Charles thing where it's like these, these really lovely, fairly pure people who just, they're really I- I- intrigued by that. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, that's funny to me. And then I, the, the iconic, and I don't know which movie it was from. It might've been the first one, but I think it was in later one was like uh, some, I think it was a detective shows up and uh, Nick was walking Asta and Nora's like, oh, no, I, I know how to get him back, and opens the window and just starts stirring the martini glass, and then he bursts oh, yeah. the door. And it's that, And I think what, what I, this also gave, and this is an improv thing, is this is another game. This is a game mm-hmm. for them to play that, that is, will never stop being funny, but it, it gives them another thing within this incredible witty uh, repartee that it doesn't need to be verbal all the time. Right. Absolutely. And yeah, it is all about games. It's the games that those two play together. I mean, they're, it's, 
it's fun to watch because they it's it, it couldn't be just enough it isn't enough to just say they like each other because if two people are just staring at each other mooning <laughs> no no yeah nothing interesting in that it, it really is about the games that they play and that's a great example i think that's in the shadow of the thin man and then yeah. um, there's a moment in another thin man where she uh has le- like nora has learned about some flame from nick's past who we don't see we just know that she existed so nora uh basically goes to a nightclub and pretends to be that woman Oh, uh, and they flirt these men and uh, gives Nick the card and he goes over there and there she is, um, which is a wonderful moment because, again, could easily be set up as just like a jealous moment or something yeah. like that. But again, any it's all about an opportunity to play the game. It's just a, a, an extraordinary way to kind of play with that relationship and enjoy watching that relationship. It, it, and it's 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 incredible, really, because if you think about it, I mean, everything that we're taught as writers is that we need to have some sort of conflict and, or that something needs to progress or, you know, that the story needs to move forward. And those little bits technically don't move the story forward, but what they do is provide uh, a window into the lives of these two people. And it's just, it's, it's incredible how, how well it works. I think it's, I think a few things, right? So there's game that exists. There's groundedness in specifics, that, mm-hmm. that exists. There is a, um, if you, uh, lest you forget that these two characters have past, have history, have all these things, that there, there's a richness to that that I think also stands a little bit in contrast, well, not a little bit, very much in contrast to movies up until that time. And I think the screwball comedies in general, uh, uh, have a, a much darker, there's a, there, again, the, sh- the shadow that exists, whether it's like bringing up baby or, you know, his girl Friday or any of those, mm-hmm. you know, uh, make them highly unique. And it's interesting that these are all coming out, right? Like pre-war, right. Um, but, but war on the horizon. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, yeah. You know, yeah. And a lot of them dealt with, you know, it's really interesting is a lot of them dealt with class, you know, cause you class, have yeah. Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert and then, um, you know, my man Godfrey really plays with class like crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really, you know, so it's it's in that, you know, it really not that you know the depression was not over in '34, but you know, certainly once the New Deal, you know, things started to, you know, at least get a little less bad. Um, but it's really interesting to think of 1934 to 1940 as sort of like the peak of this particular kind of comedy because it's. A lot of it has to do with the lives of the rich, sometimes contrasted with the lives of, of, of the poor, but also uh, just this. There's a lot of it that's dark, really, if you think about it, because, I mean, you know, His Girl Friday is about, you know, trying to stop somebody from getting executed. Yeah. <laughs> Awful. Uh, you know, bringing up baby is Catherine Hepburn's character, who I love very much, but she, I think she grates on some yeah. younger viewers now, simply because she's so insistent uh constantly just uh, in Cary Grant's face so what's uh, funny about that so so my wife Ann uh uh when she's teaching her comedy students she always shows them bringing up baby and that used to be a, a fan favorite of the kids but for the last few years they hate it until her <laughs> current group uh and her current group is all women save for one guy oh my gosh and they loved it that's awesome 
So I wonder too, right? I wonder too, in terms of whatever context that, that a group is, is coming uh, into it. I also think of Sullivan's travels with regard mm-hmm. to also being a film that, that is pretty dark in its sort of comic conceit. Oh, absolutely. Sturges did not shy away from that whatsoever. No. Um, and that, yeah, Sullivan's travels is another great example. I mean, I think there's that sort of uh, idea that these films were somehow naive or innocent, but they were, it was just everything, all the stuff that we have on the surface now is just like boil, bubbling under the surface the whole time. And if you really stop and think about it, I mean, The Thin Man's about murder. I mean, there's nothing, it's just, yeah. it's, it's about murder and it's about, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a gruesome discovery that they make in, in Wynant's laboratory, not to give anybody any spoilers. I know the movie's 89 years old, but, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, we've got dismemberments. We don't see them on screen, but um, no, it did happen. And the thing is, is that especially the first Thin Man does not shy away from being shot in uh, with shadows. I mean, it looks yeah. like a detective movie. James Wong Howe was one of the great cinematographers of all time. He shot the Thin Man, and um, uh, it looks like it looks like a detective movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm curious too. Was it in the research for the book? that you learned about this, this political satire that uh, Powell was in in 1947, uh, oh. the senator was indiscreet, or did you know about that before? I, I had heard of it, but I certainly wasn't, you know, I wasn't familiar with the film. So talk to, so this is the only film directed by George S. Kaufman. Yes. And so it, it, give us a little bit of that, because Kaufman, of course, legend, uh, and, and uh, talk, talk to us a bit about that, because you, uh, you lean on it at the beginning, I think, for a reason. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, so Powell in by 1947 had, you know, this was post-war. Now he was 55 years old. He had really um, kind of graduated from leading, you know, young romantic leading roles, and he was much more interested in character parts. So um, he appeared in the Senator was indiscreet, which was a political satire about a uh, a buffoonish senator who runs for president. Frankly, it's not that good of a film. Right. And, and it's interesting because, and the reason that it was George S. Kaufman's only directorial picture is because he just didn't, he, I, I don't know that much background about exactly what made him direct the film, but he would not look at the dailies. He, he, he would only, he wouldn't even look at the actors. When he was directing them, he was only interested in what they were saying. Yeah. Like, it's the, it's the most anti visual film director I've ever heard of. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the film is shot there. I mean, the film is shot in lots of medium shots. It looks, even though it's in sound and it was made in the 1940s, it looks like it could have been made in like 1914. Yeah. Uh, it was very, so, you know, me being Mr. Cinema Snob, teaching, you know, cinema for years and years. It was very difficult for me to watch because it was just like, you know, yeah. medium shot, medium shot, medium shot. It could have been, and also the only existing prints that are available really look bad. Yeah. So it's it's uh it's kind of a tough slog, but it's really interesting because um, Powell, and in a, a way, it's a shame that he retired as early as he did because he really could have carved himself a wonderful niche as uh, as an eccentric, you know aging character actor. He had that in him. Yeah. And well, he got to do that, I think, in Mr. Roberts, right? He got to do that in Mr. Roberts. That was his, and that was his final film. And that was really, you know, there was a string in the early fifties where he was just in a lot of bad movies. He just couldn't yeah. get a 
part. And I think he was thinking of himself as a leading actor. But the supporting role in uh, both uh, How to Marry a Millionaire and Mr. Roberts really showed he could have been the urbane, urbane sophisticated, you know, um, sort of like Sean Connery in the 80s. Yeah, uh, right, right, like, right. Like been in that sort of like, you know, the sexy old man who, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, uh, you know, was the font of wisdom uh, that could have that could have been something that he could have uh, graduated into, but he was tired and he didn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> yeah. And I think, and I think conversely, you talk about Loy and, you know, I mean, she got to be in the best years of our lives, which is, mm-hmm. I, I would think on any top 10 films of all time, I don't know how that isn't in there. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's best years of our lives, which, you know, is the story of soldiers coming home after world war two is two hours and 15 minutes long. And it's the shortest, Two hour and fifty minute song. Song, two shortest two hour and fifty minute movie ever made. Um, it and what's extraordinary is Lloyd doesn't actually have much screen time at all. Uh, right. But she got top billing. She plays the mother and the wife of Frederick March, and she doesn't need that much screen time. I mean, that's the wonderful thing about the star system because the audience, after a certain time, knew who this character was. Mm-hmm. Who knew who this was? And by this time in 1946, Lloyd personified the perfect wife. Yeah. Uh, and so all she had to do was be that. And she's extraordinary in the role. She doesn't just, you know, sort of inhabit, you know, audience expectations. She, you know, by this time, she, you know, she'd been in pictures for 20 years and um, did an extraordinary job of like, showing her love for her husband at the same time how showing sympathy and empathy for how much he was suffering and kind of being pissed off at him yeah. all in like one look in her face. And that was, you know, absolutely, you know, maybe the best acting of her career uh, in mm. that film. I love you. You have a quote that, because Powell talks about uh, Myrna Loy and, um, you quote him as saying, quote, when we did a scene together, we forgot about technique, camera angles, and microphones. We weren't acting. We were just two people in perfect harmony. Many times I played with an actress who seemed to be separated from me by a plate glass window. There was no contact at all. But Myrna, unlike some actresses who think only of themselves, has the happy faculty of being able to listen while the other fellow says his lines. She has the give and take of acting that brings out the best, end quote. I mean, wow, that that is, that's it. Give and take, that's listening, that, that. The, the bedrock of this work, which mm-hmm. is what makes incredible comedy. And I'd say they both do it. Um, mm-hmm. It's probably the onus was on, on her just in terms of the misogyny that probably existed at, at the time. But wow, it's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. And, you know, I think that, you know, there's something to be said for all the experience they had as supporting players, you know, mm-hmm. before they had an opportunity to be stars. You know, I mean, that's all you get to do is, is listen. There's, um, one of Loy's first roles was in a silent movie, Don Juan, where she played uh, Lucretia Borgia's lady in waiting, who just basically she was draped in this costume. All you could see was her face. And even though it was a silent movie, you could see her listening to everything that was going on around her and observing everything that was going on around her. And, you know, even though the part was really tiny and all she basically did was was a snitch spying on people in this silent movie. Um she was present at every moment. And because of the fact that you could see this sort of concentration in her face, 
even though she's not anywhere in the shot where we're meant to look at her, we look at her, you know, a part of it is just that oval face draped by mm. that, by that hood. But, you know, you can just see everything that's going on behind there. And, uh, you know, there was, there was a, there's no better training ground for an actor than I have to do 50 movies as a supporting character. You know, and you, you just do a ton, a ton of listening. Yeah. All right. We always end the podcast asking our guests for a yes and story. Uh, do you have one for us? Well, I was trying to think of a yes and story. And I think the only, I, I, I can't think of a specific story. Maybe the story is the last 30 years of my life. <laughs> Love it. Let's hear it. Because, uh, you know, I, took level A in October of 1993 at the mm-hmm. Second City. This is, of course, uh, when I think Second City leased uh, the top floor of a two-flat somewhere on Wells Street. Oh, yeah, uh, the yogurt shop. The yogurt shop, yes. Upstairs <laughs> uh, from the yogurt shop, uh, which is now the dog house on Wells Street where you right. can get a hot dog or a hamburger. Cool. Uh, so the second floor is for rent, by the way, just in case anyone... <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> it's probably a little more than it was in 1993. Probably. That probably. It was a magical moment. It was Sunday nights. You know, my my girlfriend had moved to New York. She was happy. I was lonely. You know, it was just, it was wonderful. And just the idea that I could take what someone else said and then build on it. And I think that philosophy has just, I've made it sort of the bedrock of the way that I live. And, mm-hmm professionally and personally. I mean, from a professional standpoint, um, you know, I've been a journalist for 20 years and a lot of the decisions I've made, I have to deal with that. Like it's, it's a wonderful way to sort of build stories. I write about, you know, 30 news stories a week now, and it's about hearing somebody say something and realizing where it can go. It's even writing this book, you know, the fact that, you know, identifying that William and Powell and Myrna Loy made 14 films together, realizing that, they had this parallel trajectory of both being villains and saying, how is this? This is a story worth telling. How can I turn this into something that will be a compelling read? When my wife wanted to move to Alaska, um, mm-hmm. by deciding, how am I going to do this? Yeah, you know, I'm saying yes and, okay. It, it, and I waited to say yes until I knew what we were going to do to do that. So it was mm-hmm. really about just sort of building whatever, um, whatever plan I had. So... Yes, and in a lot of ways has, has helped inform um, my decision-making um, that I can't just decide to do something without planning it, and which can frustrate my wife to no end. Just the, the philosophy of yes, and is, you know, deciding that, that I'm going to do something and um, then thinking, how am I going to build on that? I, heard- I think, too, I think what you're saying, too, and it relates to Nick and Nora, which sure. is this idea of, like, you're never doing something alone. Yes, you're not alone in the universe, and 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 maybe you're blessed with having a great partner as as we are. But but other, it doesn't even matter. There's always going to be someone else that's affected. So if at least you're always being like, "Yep, okay," and what what who else is this going to affect, and what else is a possibility? Right there, you know, we're in motion, and there are mm-hmm. others. And, and, and I think in an individualistic society that, that we become, that that's something that's some sort of important to remind people is how dependent we are on each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, when we decided to move back from Alaska, when Jen wanted to move back, then, you know, it was, what was it? I think I realized um, 
two she was uh actually back in chicago for a duran duran concert and i was up at like two o'clock in the morning and i said we're moving back and so i spent like the next four hours like putting together an entire itinerary <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and then i told her when i picked her up at the airport i said we're going back um and i told, I told her everything that we were going to do mm-hmm. uh over the next six months so um you know uh it's really about like just being present and being aware and um, making decisions that you know can positively impact yourself and, and, and the ones you love. Love it. The book is called Becoming Nick and Nora, The Thin Man and the Films of William Powell and Myrna Loy. Rob Kozlowski, thank you for coming on the pod. Absolutely a pleasure. Thank you very much, Dave. Getting to Yes And is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Oridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com. Survive